Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel and ITO Coaching and Performance. As you know, this past week we released two podcast episodes. The first one, episode 63, was our interview with Haley Chura. And we're going to take some time at the start here of this episode to talk a little bit about some of our big takeaways uh, from that interview. We've had a week here to process it, to think a little bit more about it, and we're going to talk more about that uh, with all of you today. The second one was a short bonus podcast that we put out on Monday following Elliot Kipchoge's 201.39 world record in the marathon last Sunday in Berlin. Um, And we mostly gushed, as I joked about that when I posted it, um, but we also talked a little bit about some of our quick takeaways, some of our hot takes. Um, This week we had a little bit more time to think about it, and so we're going to spend a lot more time talking about some of the the larger significance and some of our bigger takeaways uh, having to do with that uh, marathon world record. So if you haven't listened to either one of those, make sure you go back and listen to them. Uh, This week is News and Research Week, and in addition to talking about Elliot Kipchoge in the news, we're also going to talk about the Volta a España and the women's race at Berlin, which is one of the great all-time women's marathon. Uh, Both the Vuelta and the women's race in Berlin were both overshadowed by Elliot Kipchoge's uh, phenomenal transcendent performance there in Berlin. So we're going to take a little bit of time to talk about him today. Um, We're also going to share some research related to sleep and the importance of getting consistency in your sleep um, and some ways that you can perhaps cut your time in the weight room, which is something I'm sure that everybody is looking for. On with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta. We are still reeling from the uh, incredible record that was run by Elliot Kipchoge last week. Um, it's been the topic of all sorts of, of uh, back and forth online and via email and all sorts of things like that. And you probably are too. So, Patrick, what do you think? Uh, on the race itself? or you know, Just go, sort of how's your week been, you know, post-record here? <laughs> oh, uh, it's been phenomenal. The best part is how many people like at work and, and maybe, you know... Right. Um, you just fit friends who who don't follow the sport all of a sudden are asking like, "Hey, have you heard about this record being broken? Yeah, um, is that a big deal? That kind of a thing. Yeah, and it's been a lot of fun to explain to people, you know, just how significant uh, the event is and yeah. just how significant his accomplishment was. And then you also got into a lot of discussions with people about like, "Oh, I read Born to Run and about how." You shouldn't wear shoes, and I'm like, well, actually, the guy who did it has been in a Nike lab for the last few years. So, right, right, yeah, very good. The uh, the yeah, I've I've had people uh, that people that I work with that I don't know particularly well, like acquaintances, I guess you'd say, like yeah, you know, or colleagues, um, have come up to me and be like, oh, you run marathons, right? And I'm like, yeah, I heard that the marathon were, and I think that's interesting. I I wonder if he would have beaten it by three seconds, four seconds, ten seconds. Um, if if there still would be such a talk around it, or if it would have made such a splash, you know, um, the fact that he he beat it by more than a quarter mile, the fact that he beat it by seventy eight seconds, you know, I, I right. do wonder. Um, but anyway, we can we can circle back around and talk about that a little bit in just a minute. So um, I uh, I wanted to start off today talking about our interview with uh, with uh, Haley Chura. Uh, I know you listened to it. Obviously, you were there. So, but uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, like me, you probably have gone back and listened to it a time or two since then. And uh, we've had a lot of people write to us and say, you know, I've heard of Haley, and and particularly people here in the Atlanta area, they're like, oh yeah, I've 
I've seen her around or I, I saw her training when she used to live here and everything. And, and I know people who know her, but I've never really heard her talk or anything. And so a lot of people kind of reached out to us and said, you know, I'm a fan. I liked it. And I loved that interview. I thought it was fun. I thought it was great. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a lot of the same impressions when I listened to it again as as when we actually were conducting the interview. And I was so I was first meeting her when we were interviewing her. Yeah, you know, um, I didn't have any any connection with her beforehand. Um, but just I I really appreciate her enthusiasm for the sport and her positive energy. For I, sure, I, I think that's really a, a a key aspect of any endurance athlete is to kind of have that positive energy that kind of gets you up and at it early in the morning for training runs and and training rides, etc. For sure, yeah. I, uh, I, I think her enthusiasm, um, uh, it very much comes across. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that's one thing that a lot of folks who listen to her who who haven't known her before, um, were impressed by mm-hmm. um, is her enthusiasm and her energy and all that sort of thing. And she brings that, by the way, to her own podcast. Um, and and I do recommend her podcast. Um, uh, for for those of you who want to hear her a little bit more often you you can listen to most pleasant exhaustion we come out on mondays or on sunday nights uh her podcast doesn't come out till thursday so you have plenty of time to listen to us and then switch over to the iron women podcast and listen to her and aleska gudeski um but but yeah that a lot of that same sort of energy comes across on on her podcast as well and they they tend to they have guests pretty much every week right um like a lot of podcasts do and uh and so they, they have some pretty interesting guests there as, as well which which i always appreciate and enjoy um so so yeah i uh i i thought it was great i i appreciated how open she was um you know there's a lot of talk all professional athletes have this but particularly i think professional triathletes and professional runners the sort of more individualistic sports if you will um athletes have to be concerned about their their professional brand you know like like they are a brand in and of themselves and and because of that i think a lot of endurance athletes can sort of be guarded or at least measured you know they they're, they're worried about something they might say that could could potentially hurt their brand which in turn might turn off sponsors or turn off potential fans or something else like that and i i don't get that impression from her at all um, which is something that I appreciated. Um, even when we were when we were preparing for it, when we were talking to her beforehand, and I was emailing with her beforehand, I was like, "Do you mind if we talk about this?" And she's like, "No, it sounds great." I mean, she was like open to anything, um, and I really, really appreciated that. I think there's probably we probably could have gone on for another hour asking her her opinion on all sorts of other stuff, um, and she. I feel confident she probably would have given it to us. <laughs> yeah, and, and to get on a bit of a side tangent, I think it's interesting because you know the kind of athlete as a brand really started with Michael Jordan in the in the 90s and then it almost became overly that, yeah. overly uh processed it's not the right word but it became a little too sterile like now yeah. you know anything you see, just about anything you see tweeted or, or or instagrammed or whatever from most professional athletes are done by a PR firm mm-hmm. and so then when you have somebody like her who is an open book i think people really react to that because the whole point of being able to follow an athlete or to or to really kind of follow their career is to identify with their struggles, yeah. right? It's not just about seeing them achieve a world record or, or a great achievement of, of any kind. It's really about being able to identify with, you know, the, the struggles they go through, the, the early alarm clocks, the ice baths, the stretching, the uncertainty of knowing you're going to meet your goal, mm-hmm. all those things. And I think that can really come through, you know, in, in, in her interview and in, in, her, in her podcast, et cetera. So I, I think that's a, one of the big reasons why people really reacted to it. Uh, for sure, yeah. I, you know, it's 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 interesting too. Uh, I, I think it's very. And you and I have talked about this before. 
it's there's something very unique about endurance sports, mm-hmm. about cycling, about running, about triathlon that you share the course with the professionals. Right. Um, you know, you can be a fan of the sport and a participant of the sport at the same time. Um, she's actually Haley today is uh, is racing in Augusta. We should have said that she's racing the Augusta mm-hmm. seventy point three, which is here in Georgia, which a lot of Atlanta a- uh, area athletes are racing as well. And right. she she starts a few minutes before the athletes, but they're right behind her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um and in fact uh, a lot of times i mean when when i've done ironmans in the past i i sometimes catch some of the pro athletes that start in front of us mm-hmm. um because you know it's it's um we're on the same course you know and we're all, we're all kind of out there together which i think is so unique mm-hmm. um you know you, you you and i have joked before that you go to the super bowl and you watch and you're not like oh that was fantastic i want to get out there and do that now i, I would I, hope that's not your reaction yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, let, let me run the next play you know, mm-hmm. um, you, you don't have that opportunity. You have to be a fan. And then maybe later on, you can go play at the park in your yard. But they literally, you literally share the course and you're doing the exact same course at the exact same time the professionals are. Um, it's so unique in that regard. Um, and cycling is a little bit different, obviously. Um, but, but yeah, there, but there's, there's, there's something about that. I think that just is, is super special in our sport. Um, I liked, uh, there was a couple of things that kind of blew me away. Um, I like what she said about how she is just an early morning person. Um, and then also, even when she was talking about her, her favorite workouts, she's such a she's clearly inclined towards swimming. And, and I, I couldn't help but recall the study that we've talked about before on this podcast that showed that runners tend to be effectively tend to be deeper thinkers. Um, and that, that runners tend to be more f- prone to reflection and, and more prone to being able to go inside their own mind. As opposed to the general population. As opposed to the general population, yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. And, uh, uh, and you can't help but wonder, okay, so does that, mean, does that mean that running, because you spend so much time by yourself and kind of not doing anything except for thinking, does that mean that it promotes reflective thinking and so you create these mental habits around reflectiveness? Um, or are people who are naturally reflective better able to sustain the training, the solo training, the time on their feet with not a whole lot to do except for being inside your own head? Um, and so it's interesting to me, we, we talked about how so many swimmers get burned out and, you know, staring at the black line, and she likes that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't say this last week, but she's an accountant, you know, and she trained to be an accountant. And so that's a lot of the staring at numbers, you know, and crunching through things and spreadsheets and all that sort of thing. And then when we asked her her favorite workouts, she was like, mile repeats, doing the same thing over and over and over again, you know, hill repeats, same thing over and over. And so, you know, I, I, I wonder, she's clearly got that swimmer mind, you know, and I wonder, is there something fundamentally in her, in her psychology that, that goes back to the, her earliest days, right um before she even began swimming at age four and five that she just likes that sort of repetition and likes that sort of predictability um and 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 that's in part why she's been so successful as a swimmer and then of course as a triathlete just because she can do the repetitive things over and over and over again or is it the opposite or is it both you know is it that that by doing the opposite for so many years uh, or by doing repetitive things for so many years she's come to appreciate and like repetitive things um or is it you know some combination of both? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great point. Um, so it makes me think back to I was listening to uh, a, a podcast with Bill Simmons, who just kind of does general entertainment, and he, he was interviewing somebody who said most great actors have that same ability to just yeah. dial in and repeat a scene over and over and over again. Yeah, and 
enjoy it. Um, and they actually compared actors to athletes in that regard, where it's it's kind of a a mindless it's it's a mindful reflection on a mindless set of repetitions. Yeah, and it, you're just constantly just honing in on on one thing over and over again, and kind of slowly but surely mastering that craft or that piece or that set. Yeah, and so it, it's pretty interesting, and I can certainly see a little bit of that in myself and with you too, right? Mm-hmm. Our, you know, on our runs, you're obviously obviously always very reflective and kind of um, introspective, but it it's definitely interesting to think about, right? As to like why we became runners, why we enjoy it so much, yeah, you know, and then and then where does it really play into kind of that equation of why we love it so much? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there's definitely there's definitely a link between the way my brain works, my general reflectiveness, and and my athleticism, and 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 by athleticism I mean my involvement in athletics. I don't mean my athletic ability. Um, there, there's a big crossover there, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you know, not only can I can I say I I, I def I, and I and I work in academia now. I work in right. the world of ideas, um, and so so it kind of makes me wonder. Okay, what would would I now today work in the world of ideas if if I hadn't spent so much time in my own head, you know, at really really formative times in my life. Um, you know, would I, would I enjoy gray areas so much, mm-hmm. um, if, if, if I didn't spend so much time running and just sort of lost in thought, mm-hmm. um, I definitely know that, that during the times when I had been working on my PhD, uh, and my master's degrees back in the day, I, I sort of let a lot of my running lapse just because I, I was just focused on other things. But, but when I would go out for runs I would feel a lot better, <laughs> right? And 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 things like pre- problems I was wrestling with would become very clear. Um, and so so running actually really supported those those intellectual endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Anyway, but but yeah, I, I did think that was just sort of an interesting thing that 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 she she has that a mind for repetition mm-hmm. clearly. Yeah. Um. And and she finds a great deal of of strength and pleasure in in repetition. Um, and I thought that was interesting. Um, I thought our conversation about the 50 women to Kona was great. Mm-hmm. Um, she, and I, I, and even like we, so we're talking about her openness. She was super honest about that. She's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I just started waking up to these issues a few years ago. She said, I even look back on some of the stuff I did myself as an early athlete and as an accountant, she said that was, um, not really helping out women. Um, and so I appreciated that level of honesty from her. Um, I was really, I really, really found interesting the fact that she said that there are women who remain amateurs rather than getting their pro cards because they want to keep going to Kona and they know that they can qualify. And we're going to talk about Kona next week in our in our Kona preview, but um, and how people qualify and all that sort of thing. But but she said that there are women who who are strong enough athletes to be pro female long course triathletes. Um, and yet they don't get their pro cards. They stay amateur because they want to keep on racing Kona, and they can qualify as an amateur, and they can't qualify as a pro because women only get seventy amount, seventy percent of the amount of slots that men get on, in the pro field at Kona. Men get fifty, women get thirty-five. Um, that blows me away. I, I never considered that phenomenon. Yeah, and that's a real shame too. I mean, we talk a lot oh, yeah. on, on this podcast about providing the infrastructure t- for elite athletes to succeed and to grow and to develop, right? I mean, we say all the time, 
the more 16 minute five cares you have, the more 15 minute five cares you have right down the road, right? Yeah. right down the line. Right. And so from a macro perspective, you know, or just a purely kind of logistical perspective, um, that's sad that we're probably losing on a lot of talent here in America because we don't have more spots available for races yeah. like that. Um, and then from a bit more of a, a personal level, well, but, a bit because more it, of a, cre- it creates a hole, right? Right. Because, because if, if women who should be pros are remaining amateurs, that means women who would be the top amateurs are going to be discouraged and are going to find other sports or something else like that, right? right? right. And so, so, so it creates this this gap, if you will, that that um, right there around the elite amateur area, that that you have sort of really good pro level women, and then you have this gap of of women who really could probably achieve at a very high age group level, but don't because they they find other sports or something. What was that? <laughs> so I think that was my my computer applauding that point. Um, but uh, <laughs> we'll go with that, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. And then on a bit more of a, a a a civil level, I don't know if that's the right word, or social level, it it's just not right. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> to put it bluntly, I mean, when you have a, a preschool full of four year olds, you say, "All right, everybody get in line. Everybody be equal. You share." I mean, it's you know, you 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 know that you treat everybody fairly, and that I mean, just just from a very basic kind of human perspective, yeah. It's 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 neither it's neither equal nor equitable. Yeah. So it's neither fair nor the same. Right. You know, I mean, a lot of times people will will, will say, "Oh, well, um, you know, we're, we're treating everybody the same, and that's equal, and it's not." Right. Um, you know, because treating everybody the same is not always fair. Right. Um, this is not even equal. Yeah. Um, to say nothing of of unfair. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so yeah, I mean, I I really appreciated her talking with us about that, um, and I thought it was very interesting. You know, it's hard. And again, we'll talk about this next week. It's really, really hard for elite women to qualify for Kona because um, so few women have spots to get to Kona. Um, and then elite age group women. Mm-hmm. And then if now on top of that, you have pro-level women who aren't going pro, who are sucking up a lot of those spots that would be going to amateurs. Right. Um, that's just, oh, yeah, I can't imagine. Um, I mean, it's... Very unfair and super frustrating. Um, and then the, the last thing, I guess, that I wanted to talk about that stood out to me, and I'd certainly be interested to hear what else you had to say about it. When she talked about getting hit, obviously, yep. um, that stood out. Um, I had always suspected that one of the reasons why she moved back to Bozeman was because was it was kind of after getting hit, she was um, unsettled by that and, and wanted to go to a place where there was less traffic and, mm-hmm. and almost kind of get back home again, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was very forthright about that. She's like, oh yeah. Um, right. you know, she didn't hedge on that at all. Um, and, and she actually volunteered it. I didn't even have to ask it. Um, that, that was a big part of why she had moved back afterwards. Um, she said that, that, that she didn't want to ride around traffic anymore. And, and, and even there, she says she, she does 70% of her, her training inside. Um, interestingly enough, I, uh, I traded email with her. Uh, just over the course of the last couple of days, I, I wished her luck in, in Augusta, and I, I apologize for our not having talked about it on the podcast because I didn't realize she was doing Augusta. Um, and she said, by the way, she wrote back and said thanks and said, by the way, uh, Miranda Carfrey and Tim O'Donnell, married couple, super high elite athletes. Uh, Miranda Carfrey's won Kona a few times and holds the run course record for women at Kona, has run under 250 at Kona um, in the marathon after you know cycling and 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 uh swimming um but uh but the two of them um 
they recently had a child together, and and she said she had heard that when they go out for bike rides outside, they hire a car to follow them with its flashers on. Um, and she said I had heard that, but you know I didn't mention it or anything on the on the podcast last week because it was just sort of a rumor. She said, "Well, I saw it this week in Augusta that they were in Augusta and they went out for a training ride together, and they had hired a car to follow them with its flashers on, yeah, um, in order to block traffic and and increase safety for them." Um, and she she kind of joked, "I guess that's how the one percent lives." But yeah, yeah, <laughs> but, but, I mean, but she's right. Highlights I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, it's only highlights the difference between maybe an amateur and an elite. Um, but it also kind of uh, shows just how real the danger is that people are taking that yeah. um, kind of precaution to to, yeah. to avoid um, getting hit. Yeah. So I mean that's a pretty interesting story, and you know, it, it generally you want a sport that's a bit more free flowing and doesn't have quite so many obstacles or yeah. um, rules kind of governing what you can and can't do. And by rules, I mean not just like governing rules, but also just rules of the universe, so to speak. Um, and I mean, if, if if that's what it requires, then there could, there can be some real um, loss of talent there. Yeah, for people I mean, deciding it's not worth it. Yeah, it's a barrier to entry. Yeah, I mean, you there and you I go, talked that's about the word this. I was looking for. Yeah, I mean, you and I, yeah. Well, I, I got that term from you. I mean, you and I have talked about barriers to entry before to mm-hmm. to, to to running to running, but 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 more generally to cycling and triathlon. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the barriers to entry are pretty high, um, and I think that 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 bike safety is potentially one of those barriers to entry, and that's too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's frustrating. Um, so, other takeaways from Haley? I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Like I said, I uh, I loved it. Uh, I, I tell you, I've, of all the kind of elite endurance athletes I've ever met, they've all been pleasant, happy, you know, kind of cheerful people. So yeah, it, it was good to, to meet another one. <laughs> right on. Very good. Very good. So yeah, uh, haven't checked on Haley's results this morning. She's probably finishing right about the time we're recording here. So we'll have to. Uh, to, to take a look at that when we're at the break here. But, uh, but yeah, uh, look forward to seeing how she did and hope everything went well for her this morning at Augusta. Um, let's talk about it's been a week since Berlin. It's been a week. Other, so we, we, we recorded our, our, our special bonus episode and put it out on Monday. And, AKA and... calling in from work. <laughs> I, think, I think I was in my car. Yeah. Right <laughs> on. Um, and I, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I, when I posted that one on on Facebook, I said, you know, there's a lot of gushing here, um, and there was, and and but I, in looking at it later, there's a lot of gushing in all the coverage, you know, I mean, like like even the 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 more jaded uh, uh, sports reporters and everything were like, this was pretty incredible, and and he's hard not to gush over to, right, um, because he's such a good representative of the sport, and he's so much fun to watch, and and. And so it's hard not to gush over him as well. But, um, but yeah, I thought it was great, um, obviously. Um, additional takeaways after a week here? Oh, gosh. Uh, I would say kind of the, the, the biggest takeaway I had is a little bit like we talked about before where, and I, I'm not sure if this is kind of a, a sign of the sport itself growing or awareness of the sport growing, but I had so many people ask me about it. Yeah, I've never had people ask me about a, a running event or a long-distance running event outside of the Olympics before. Uh, you know, and everybody knows I'm a runner. I've been a runner for 15 years or so, but this was the first time where, you know, coworkers were asking me, man, did you see that? You know, how crazy was that? And so that was one of my big takeaways was just people's reaction. And I don't know how much of it is now the running community has gotten so much bigger. So even if 
coworkers, you know, weren't necessarily runners themselves. They know somebody who's a runner. They have a friend who's a runner. Right. And so it's a bit more omnipresent in their life, and they can appreciate it a bit more because, you know, I, I was talking to folks yesterday, and they said, we didn't know what runners went through. We didn't know you guys ran every day until recently. Okay. Like, it's just not something we, we just figured you went to practice Tuesday, Thursday, and that was that. But, you know, as the running community grows, it's amazing to see other people's reaction. Other people get more invested in the sport mm-hmm. as they know people who are runners. They know people who put in the training, who put in the work. And, and they, they see the struggle that, that, that happens that, that everyone has to go through to get to the finish line and to get through the finish line strong. So that was one takeaway. How about you? Yeah. I, uh, I, I've enjoyed a lot of the stuff around like the number crunching and everything that, mm-hmm. that I think has been kind of fascinating. Um, um, and I, I totally agree with what you just said, by the way. Um, and, and like I said here at the outset, I do wonder, and I, and this is not a question we'll, we'll be able to answer. I do wonder whether, um, because it was such an incredible crushing of the record, whether that helped it spread in the in the mainstream consciousness a little bit more um, than if he would have just like squeaked under the record. You yeah, know? and and how much did the breaking barrier or breaking two barrier uh, campaign almost plant the seed in people's mm-hmm. heads who wouldn't have heard of it? Yeah, beforehand. Yeah, yeah, and 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 to be honest, and you and I have talked about this that that um, two oh one two oh one thirty nine. Um, that feels right around the corner from two hours, um, much more so than than two effectively two o three two o two fifty eight did right right two o two o two fifty seven and so I think now people are like oh it's two o it was it was two o three now it's two o one and so for a lot of people it feels really really close now mm-hmm. it's not. <laughs> but but um it's i mean you know it's it's still 100 seconds away um but uh but it's it, i think i think that's part of it as well is that you know okay we're really knocking on the door now you know we being the human race mm-hmm. that that okay now we're at 201 next thing you know it's going to be too flat then 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 under 2 and so i think maybe that has a lot to do with it too is that that by getting to 201 that the, the two hour barrier is is now on people's radar, mm-hmm. um, more in, in more of a mainstream way. Now that being said, like like I just said, and like we talked about on our bonus episode, I don't think it's right around the corner. No. Um, and and in fact, there was a there was a piece just this morning on uh, on Let's Run dot com um, by one of their guys who's who's a writer for them that I, actually I've come to like a lot called named Jonathan Galt, and uh, and he said that one of the the real meanings of this two hundred one thirty nine is it's going to bring an end to to the chasing of the world record. Um, that you know there was so much, um, particularly in Berlin and London, over mm-hmm. the course of the last several years, it was around okay, let's get the world record, let's get the world record. Come on, let's let's set up pacers for the world record. Let's try and you know tweak things um, in order to, to try and get the world record and all that sort of thing. And he he said nobody's breaking this world record for a while. Right. Um, the only person that could potentially break it is Kipchoge himself, and we don't yet know what his next what his next priority is going to be, whether he's going to try and break his own record or whether he's going to be good with this or whether he's going to try and go under two hours or whether he's going to go to New York and Boston or focus on winning another gold medal or something else like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, because of that, like the whole, the whole, the animating ideal of trying to break the world record, it's going to go away for a while, mm-hmm. which I think is a really excellent point. And so, and it's kind of exciting actually um, to say, okay, so, so, what are we going to do now? 
You know, what 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 frontiers are we going to plow now? Um, and I think that's interesting. I think it's fun. Yeah, and what it allows us to get back to racing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. the 20257 market, it lasted for almost four years, but it never felt unbreakable. Totally. Right? It always kind of felt like, I mean, it was set in September 2014 in Berlin, but as phenomenal as it was, you know, there were three or four other runners that day that were within 16 seconds of that yeah. of that time. So, you know, it, it, it felt like, okay, let's keep pushing, pushing, maybe we can break this. This feels like I don't I don't think anybody's going to sacrifice yeah. a race to go for this this yeah. record. Um, so so that's the, uh, certainly an interesting point that point that you know now it's not going to be quite so much about okay how do we get this time down? It's going to be more about how can we win or how can we set yeah. up our professional for agents will be thinking how can I get my athlete? Or shoe companies are going to be thinking how can I get my athlete to win Boston yeah. or New York or Chicago or London or Berlin or Berlin yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, Berlin has been... So, So the last 10 marathon world records, of the last 10 marathon world records, seven of them have been run in Berlin. Yes. Um, and so Berlin is like the place you go for records, man. Um, and and I wonder, like, what's Berlin going to do next year? Well, and to build on you your know? point, on the men's side, the last seven years, Berlin has had the fastest men's marathon. Yeah. Oh, excuse me, let me... Let me the last the, the, eight like, years, because it's 2011 through 2018. I, yeah. I didn't update that note for after the race. So. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty sure this is going to be the yeah. fastest one in 2018, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so the, you mean like the fastest marathon of the year has been run at Berlin? Correct. Yeah. And so, so I mean, what's Berlin going to do next year? It's not like Berlin's going to be like, oh, hey, great. We broke the world record here by 77 seconds. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll have to see, right? Um, yeah, and, and I, it's going to be interesting, too, because I, I have to think that, that the shoe companies are going to play a pretty big part in this. Um, I you know so right now berlin is or this year at least berlin is was competing with chicago in terms of like trying to get the elite fields right yeah and so just to kind of clarify for folks kipchoge is a nike athlete um chicago is a nike (laughs) athlete which which, which, is a nike race which you got wrong in our phone call which i thought was hilarious but you know i know i literally said that michael (laughs) jordan is like puma or something it was ridiculous um and berlin is an adidas race and so you saw a lot of the Nike athletes like Rupp, Farah, Gruy, they were all kind of shuffled into Chicago to kind of buffer that race in many ways, which is a Nike race. Um, and because Nike probably made the decision that, well, Kipchoge doesn't need any competitors in Berlin. He's such, he has such star power. Oh, yeah. He almost he had, outshines he had, the race he itself. Had, he had three pacers that were solely there for him. Right. So there were six pacers in the race. He got three of them, and everybody else got three of them. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he he was running the race by himself. I'm sure that was decision was made in a in a boardroom mm-hmm. somewhere because mm-hmm. his star power has surpassed the marathon itself. I mean, yeah. he is a brand himself. Yeah. Um, you know, like Mo Farah could have potentially, you know, run Berlin and made it a bit more of less one sided of a race, but it was probably decided let's, you know, make yeah. a bit more of a strategic move here. So that's that's going to be interesting to see kind of how how that plays out. Um, okay, so on that note, by the way. So there was a there was a guy who kind of had a little bit of of, of minor stardom uh, on Twitter, um, and he was the drinks guy. Um, Sounds like I, a quality guy. Yeah, absolutely. But he was the guy. I, I think I I think I mentioned him in our bonus episode to you. Um, but his name is Klaus Henning Skulki, um, and and Klaus here is actually a triathlete um, and. At a swim back in the early 1990s, um, he was like at a master's swim, 
the guy who is the director of the Berlin Marathon volunteer says, hey, we need more volunteers to come. Will you help volunteer? And he said, sure. So he's been volunteering at the the Berlin Marathon for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of that time, he's kind of gotten you know to be a more and more important volunteer he's gotten to be you know higher and higher rank within the volunteer ranks you know uh, i'm sure it's germany they haven't very highly organized and very hierarchical but anyway right. um so he uh his job uh during the marathon the other day was uh last week was to hand drinks to elliot kipchoge and so yeah he, oh this guy yes this guy. okay yeah and so so he rode a mountain bike alongside elliot kipchoge and he would he would pass him and then he would get up in front of him and then he would grab his drink off the table and he'd hold out the drink specifically for Elliot Kipchoge to get um and the idea here was to make sure that that Elliot Kipchoge didn't miss any of his own drinks right, right. and he didn't have to swerve and he didn't have to slow down to make sure that he was getting his precise formula and all that sort of thing off the table um and and uh he was brilliant but 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 more than that he was super enthusiastic and so uh, people who are watching it on TV happen to notice, like, every time Kipchoge would get a drink, there would be this guy behind him in a, in a, in a bike helmet going, yes, yes, because he had, <laughs> he had successfully connected with him and gotten the drink. So anyway, the, there was an interview with that guy on Let's Run, um, and, and he said in the interview, which I thought was interesting, and it kind of relates back to what you were just saying, he said, as volunteers, we've continued to do stuff. Um, to try and just shave off seconds here and seconds there and stuff like that. So, for example, he said that he had Kipchoge's name um, on his sleeve, like on the forearm of his sleeve. It said Kipchoge in really, really, really big letters. And that way, when he's holding out the drink, you could see Kip, Kipchoge could see his name, and it was it's like written across his arm. Yeah, it's written right. across his yeah. arm. Yeah, and so, so, so it would reduce the possibility that Kipchoge would would miss him. Right. And Kipchoge did actually miss him at the very last station because the crowds were just so thick there, and Kipchoge just couldn't see him in time. Um, and but it didn't matter at that point, you know. Kipchoge already had the record well in hand. Um, but uh, but he said, you know, we keep doing things and tweaking things and trying to save seconds here and there, and da, da, da. and so maybe that's, I mean, maybe that's gonna be Berlin's thing, is that they're gonna just kind of try and keep chipping away at it, but. I don't know, unless Kipchoge continues to agree to go there every single year. I mean, I don't know who else is going to be able to chip any seconds off of 201.39, but we'll see. Right, right. It, it's, to make the Michael Jordan comparison again, it's it's a little bit like when the, the Bulls coach said, our, our goal is just to build defense and not worry about offense. Well, that works when you have the greatest <laughs> score in the world. But, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's very interesting. And another point I wanted to make, too. Uh, oh, one final thing, too. You talk about how enthusiastic the, the drink holder was. Uh, I, I have to point out, I love that Kipchoge was smiling at the end. Oh, yeah. I, 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 obviously, I, I'm one who's a big proponent of smiling during a race and trying to enjoy it and trying to – obviously, you need to hunker down and, and be tough and be strong. But just to kind of remind yourself that this is something we do because we enjoy it. And even though it hurts, you know, it is something we enjoy. And it does bring um, some real sense of accomplishment in our lives. And so I want to point that out. And then the other thing that, that's interesting is that uh, – hang on. I totally lost my thought there. Oh, yeah. So this is his 10th victory and 11 marathon starts. Yeah. 10 victories out of 11. Yeah. That's incredible. That's an amazing winning percentage for a sport where it's just one team versus another. Yeah. Much less like you versus the field yeah. or an individual versus the field. That is phenomenal. Yeah. And it was his ninth straight. Yeah. 
I mean, just an absolutely unparalleled run of marathon success. I don't think we've seen. I, I can't think of another parallel, really. I mean, we had, um, you, you know, uh, Boston Bill Rogers who ran a, a couple Boston's in a row or something, yeah, and, and Salazar who ran a f- mm-hmm. won a few Boston's in a row. Mm-hmm. But and that New doesn't. York, yeah. But that doesn't compare to to this. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, and it's and this is going to sound a little snarky, but it's worth pointing out that the one person who beat him, it was his second marathon that he that he did not win. It's the only one he hadn't won. Um, was was uh, Wilson Kipsang. Yep. Um, and Wilson Kipsang was literally a mile behind him um, in Berlin the other last weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like I said, that sounds a little bit snarky, um, but but. Yeah, I, I I think it's safe to say that that even that one loss was um was was kind of a fluke. Yeah, or <laughs> let's say, let's just say it still plays into the narrative that he's yeah a generational great. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's not like he lost to one of the other greats. Like he didn't lose to Haile Gebrselazi or or to Kennedy Sebekele in their last race or something. Right. Like that. He's beaten those guys too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bekele or. Uh, uh, Gebrselazzi is a little bit old now, um, um, but but you know he he has soundly beaten Beckley on on more than a couple one occasion. Um, uh, two other things I'll mention. Um, one is uh, negative splits. Mm-hmm. Um, world records tend to be run uh, one with negative splits, um, and and which I think is kind of incredible actually. Yeah. Um, and that was one thing that breaking two was actually uh, the breaking two project was criticized for by saying that, okay, we're going to try and run perfectly even splits. We're going to try and run the exact same thing every single time. A few people said, if you look at history, the second half is always faster than the first. Um, and that's mostly true. So looking back at those those last 10 records, um, there was some interesting uh, data on that. But uh, looking back at the last 10 world records to be run over the course of the last several years here, um, uh, one, two, three, let's see, seven out of the 10 um the second half was faster than the first half mm-hmm. um so so seven of the ten were were uh faster than the first half and even the ones that were slower um Khalid Kanuchi ran 205.38 in London um and his second half was only 6 seconds slower than the first right? right and so we're not talking about like a profound positive split here um when Wilson Kipsang the guy we were just talking about uh in Berlin ran the world record of 203.23 which was the one time that he beat uh 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 Eliud Kipchoge it took a world record at the time to beat Eliud Kipchoge um uh he ran uh 15 seconds slower he ran 61.34 then 61.49 and so you know, even the ones that 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 are positive splits, it's still pretty close to being a negative split. Um, and then, of course, Elliot Kipchoge ran sixty one oh six for the first half, and then sixty thirty three for the second half. Um, you know, almost one percent faster, point nine percent faster in the second half. And it's worth pointing out that there's only three Americans that have ever run sixty minutes and thirty three seconds <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> on a record eligible course, um, and he ran it for the second half of his marathon. So, yeah, pretty incredible there. Yeah, that's negative splitting to the nth degree. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Neg- negative splitting to to a degree that most people can't even run a single split. Yeah. yeah, what do you think of that for our marathon plan? To just do the first half, whatever, and then run a world record the second half. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just knock it out, right? Yeah, that'll be uh, my philosophy in December. Yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, Strava a couple years ago, you might you might remember in 2016. 
um, they had a promotion along with New Balance mm-hmm. that they said that if you run a negative split and you upload your race, your, your, it's a marathon. If you run a negative split marathon and you upload the race to Strava and indeed it's a negative split, they'll give you a free pair of New Balance shoes. Really? Yeah, yeah. I hope they and run that again. I know, right? And I, and I, I signed up for it um, since I was doing the New York City Marathon that year, but my New York City Marathon ended up being about a two-minute positive split, so I ended up not getting the shoes. I was pretty bummed out about that. Um, but, yeah, so maybe they'll do it again. Um, uh, we'll see. Um, the one other thing I'll say about this, too, um, and this ties in to, um, to something that's very much on my mind for my personal running that, Patrick, you and I have talked about at great length already, and I've talked about with a few other people as well. Um, and, and that's about running what you have on a particular day and running the best that you can on a particular day and, and about how – races can be really good races and can be successful races even if they're not your fastest races and that's something that 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 i totally understand and get and have no problem with when it comes to 5k's 10k's half marathons even Um, but for some reason when it comes to the marathon i tend to have a different approach like the marathon i had to put all my eggs in one basket and it has to be the certain time or else it's not successful and i'm working on that mindset uh, and I'm I'm doing lots of things to try and change that mindset for myself. Um, but in looking at all the different things that that Elliot Kipchoge has done, um, he ran 2:08 for the Olympic marathon to win 2:08, and now he's run 2:01. So he literally ran seven minutes slower um, in in the Olympic marathon. Would I dare say the Olympic marathon was not a success for him because he was seven minutes slower than what he was capable of running? Of course not. Yeah. But but he beat everybody on that day. He accomplished the goal. He won the Olympic marathon. You know, he, he, he ran the best he could on a course that was slower and conditions that were slower. And so I'm kind of thinking about that as, as, as a model for myself, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that that's something that I can take away is, is to look that, you know, Elliot Kipchoge, I'm sure if you were to ask him, he wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, the Olympic marathon. That's kind of, you know, a, a black mark. We don't talk about that. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that, that's, I don't really want to talk about that. Of course not. Of course not going to say that. He ran a, you know, I, I, I want to even say it was Olympic. It might, I don't think it was quite an Olympic record marathon, um, Olympic marathon record, but, but, but it was close. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Um, and so, you know, I'm doing the Philadelphia marathon in eight weeks. Um, I'm probably not going to PR there. I'm going to run the best I can on that day. But if I run, if I run a little bit off the time that I want to run, but it, it can still be a success. Um, and like I said, I had that mindset when it comes to the neighborhood 5K. But for some reason, I just can't apply that to marathons. Just well, well, to kind of defend you a bit too, um, it's a little harder in the marathon because – so I can tell you for me personally, I can run by feel in a 5K or 10K without even looking at a watch. Yeah, yeah, me too. The problem is it's hard to run a marathon by feel because at least the first five to seven miles or so – because it's so exciting, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you're not going to beat the starting line of the Boston Marathon and hear crickets. I mean, there's going to be a lot of cheering, there's going to be a lot yeah. of spectacle, a lot of pageantry. And uh, it, it's hard to know how you're feeling on that day because it's so much slower than what you want to run at that particular time. Like a 5K... You mean like at that moment? Right. Yeah. Like a 5K, it's obviously not an all-out sprint, but you're still putting your foot on the gas. Mm-hmm. But a marathon, you're really having to kind of peel back and, and, yeah. and keep it keep it light. So I think that's part of the reason why is we are a bit more dependent on kind of a preset plan. But to your point, the real art is knowing how to adjust your original plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if not necessarily based on how you feel, but on saying, hey, this is hot. And I know that this is how, this is how much heat affects me or this kind of heat affects me. Yeah. 
So it's it's definitely interesting to think about. It's it's one of the hardest parts I feel like about the first you know ten miles or so of a marathon is knowing what where the line is and, and how to how to run up to the edge but not cross the line. That's an interesting point. Yeah, and, that, and that'll give me something to think about over the course of the next little while here. That that's something for me to reflect on. That does the marathon by its very nature and and it's important to say too i recognize that marathons and 5ks are different right. oh yeah <laughs> you know and so so I'm, I'm sitting here saying i want to run marathons the way i run 5ks no i recognize they're different from one another of course i do um but but you make a good point in that does by virtue of the differences between a marathon and a 5k does it therefore mean that you have to have a more rigid plan um, than you would for a 5k. Um, does it mean that? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. That's up for me to reflect on over the course of the next little while, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. Cause you know, I, 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 and I've told you this before too. I heard an interview with the, uh, the coach of the Northern Arizona cross country team, who's the favorite to re to three Pete this year in NCAA cross country. I really um, like him. Yeah, I do too. Um, and, uh, he was on the, uh, the, the Steve Magnus's podcast. Um, and uh, he he was talking about how the best way to screw up your athletes prior to a race, and of course he's working with collegiate athletes that run five thousand meters and ten thousand meters, um, and run cross country where times don't matter at all, um, right. and splits really don't matter. Yeah, um, and and he said he said the, the the best way to to screw up your athletes and to 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 mess up their racing mindset is to get them too focused on time. Um, he said because they're not going to get in a flow state. If they're if they're really concerned about what the time is, and that that really resonated with me, um, mm-hmm. and thinking about trying to get in a flow state and trying to get into to to a good uh, mindset for for racing, but the point you make I think just now I think is interesting. Do, does a marathon, particularly a big city marathon, with all that hoopla and all that hype and all those fans, does by the very nature does that mean that you do need to have some sort of plan? Because in an Ironman, for example, like in an Ironman bike. You know, you're looking at your power meter, and if you were going totally by feel, you'd be going too hard. Right. You you, you got to look at your power meter, particularly in that first thirty or forty miles, and say, hold back, hold back. <laughs> you know, because because your legs feel the best they're ever going to feel um, in those first thirty or forty miles, and it's the same in a marathon. Your legs feel great. You're tapered. You're fit. You're ready to roll. Um. So, do you therefore need a plan and try and stick more to a more rigid plan? Yeah, I don't know. Listeners, by all means, reach out to us. George at ITLcoaching.com. Patrick at ITLcoaching.com. Pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, on Twitter. Let us know what, what you think about that. So, yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about last couple pieces of news here, and then we've got to talk about some research. Um, yeah, the, the race in Berlin, the men's race in Berlin, definitely overshadowed a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, and, and probably, the, probably the, the, the most tragic thing that overshadowed was, it was probably the best women's marathon of all time. Yeah, um, in in Berlin as well, uh, and so we do make sh- want to make sure we talk about that. Uh, the winner was Gladys Chirono of Kenya, um, and it was her third win. Uh, she got a three-peat uh, at, in Berlin there, and she ran two eighteen eleven, two eighteen eleven for for a female marathoner, um, and that's a course record. Um, the course record was thirteen years old, uh, and she beat it by a minute. 
Um, and in the process, she actually became the fourth fastest marathoner of all time. Now, Gladys Toronto, she's brilliant. She only actually started, first started running marathons in, in 2015. Uh, she was a world half marathon champion in 2014, moved up to the marathon, moved up distance-wise uh, to the marathon, um, and, uh, and started running well. And now she's one of only a handful of women who has four different performances, four marathon performances under 22030. Um, and so, so yeah, which is just absolutely incredible. Um, but what made the race so amazing was that second place, uh, was a 24 year old Ethiopian named Rudy Aga. Um, and she ran two eighteen thirty four. So here we are talking about how great, you know, Gladys Chirono is for running two eighteen eleven, And she is, but she was only 23 seconds in front of second place. Um, you know, contrast that with Elliot Kipchoge, who literally won by a mile. Um, and then, uh, and then you end up having a third place, um, was Turanesh Dababa, and she ran two eighteen fifty five. Um, so and, yeah, and I might had who is potentially the greatest female distance runner of all time. Oh yeah, yeah, and she was third. Um, and she, but she ran the 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 fastest third place marathon ever by a lot, <laughs> by by several minutes. Um, all three of them ran under the course record, the former course record. Um, and, and all three of them ran under 219. So it was actually the fastest podium of all time. Um, and, and yeah, it was only, you know, a, a transcendent men's world record that, that really, uh, ended up, uh, obscuring this, this brilliant women's race here by, uh, by Gladys Toronto, Rudy Aga and Turnesh Dababa. So yeah, pretty amazing there. What do you have to say about that? Uh, just a few quick notes. Um, one, I mean, we, we talk about how Dababa is potentially one of the best or, or the best female distance runner of all time. She also had a significantly faster PR than the others heading into this race, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, unless there was a race I was missing. And so she looked like it almost looked like she was going to be the the Elliot Kipchoge of the female race um, mm. or that she was going to kind of have a significant or clear advantage over her peers. Yeah. And then she ended up finishing third despite breaking the record. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's phenomenal to think about. Um, it, it's unfortunate that, that those three did not get the same kind of fanfare that you know that they could choke you out or that maybe some other performances have gotten in the past. But but but, but understandable. I mean, yeah. we, we we've done it, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, here we are. We're, we're going to spend a few minutes here talking about the women's race, and we're going to we're going to heap praise on them that they deserve. Um, but but yeah, I mean we. We've spent a lot more minutes talking about Elliot Kipchoge's record um, and and him as a runner and and, uh, and generally speaking. So, so yeah, it's just it's hard it's hard to compete. <laughs> yeah, and let, with that world record. Yeah, and let, let's say too, you know, uh, unfortunately there has been a bit of a disparity between the men and women's field at Berlin um, in terms of you know one being a bit more stacked than the other. Um, and, and Berlin has seemed to kind of clearly prioritize bringing in the fast men and not so much the fast women. So let's hope that this result will will help change that, or at least, mm-hmm. you know, start uh, start to kind of even out the field a bit. And what's interesting about that too is Berlin itself, from a field perspective, not just the elite field, but all the runners uh, heading into this year, like last year, the finishers were roughly seventy percent male and thirty percent female, which is uncommon. Mm-hmm. That's not yeah. you know a generally how it goes. Yeah, if you look at Boston or New York, I think the gender split is closer to to fifty five forty five. Yeah. Um, it could be that, that more men are more time motivated. And so they're trying to, to, to cram into this fast Berlin course, but that's, it, it's kind of interesting to see how, how the greater field does reflect, um, the elite field to some degree, yeah. whether it's coincidence or, or correlation, I, I can't say, but 
Well, you know, and it's interesting too to consider. Okay, so so we were just talking a few minutes ago about okay, what's Berlin going to do now? Mm-hmm. All right, because Berlin, you know, what are they going to do? Well, maybe they'll say okay, women's record. You know, That's a good I point. mean, Mark Wetmore is uh, is Turnesh Dababa's agent. Mark Wetmore was the coach at the University of Colorado for a long time, and right. you know, there was a book that came out. 20 years ago by a guy named Chris Lear called Running with the Buffaloes. Um, and Mark Wetmore was like this, uh, this major character in that book. Cause he was the, uh, the, the coach of the university or university of Colorado Buffaloes at that time. Anyway. Um, uh, but Mark Wetmore actually said before the race, Hey, um, turn is going after the world record. Um, now Paula Radcliffe's world record of two fifteen, at the time that it was run about 10 years ago was, as big, if not a bigger breakthrough than Elliot Kipchoge's two hundred one thirty nine, um, and and it is as untouchable as Elliot Kipchoge's record was, mm-hmm. um, if not even more so. Like Paula Radcliffe herself never came close to to it again, um, and so um, maybe that's where Berlin will go. Mm-hmm. Maybe Berlin will say, "All right, we got the men's record. It's probably going to stay here for a little while. Let's let's pour all our resources into getting all the very best women here together." getting a lot of rabbits for the women, starting the women maybe before we start the men, something else like that, um, the way they do in, in like, Boston, um, and, uh, and and trying to really focus on the women's race and women's uplift. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. So hear me, Berlin organizers. That's where you should go next. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I like that angle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're feeling adrift, Berlin organizers here, uh, now that Elliot Kipchoge has, has put away the men's record, well, women's record. I don't think there's... That, that that that's where your focus can go. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be cool. I think that'd be neat. Very good. Um, and then of course, speaking of overshadowing, um, the Vuelta a España, um, which poor Vuelta a España, man, um, it is overshadowed by the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia. It's sort of like the 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 third most prestigious of the three cycling grand tours. Um, it happened to finish on the same day that Elliot Kipchoge ran this record, and so like all the endurance folks like me. Who who follow endurance sports and everything and and uh, are have been following the Volta España throughout the course of its three weeks? Um, yeah, all of my attention and all the reading I was doing on su- Sunday and Monday was not about Simon Yates winning the uh, Volta España. Instead, it was about Elliot Kipchoge breaking the world record. But uh, but yeah, the Volta España we should say it, it also came to an end last week, uh, same day that Elliot Kipchoge ran the record in Berlin, uh, and it was won by a guy named Simon Yates. Uh, British guy um, who uh, uh, is a twin. Um, his twin is named Adam Yates, and they both are on the same team, Mitchelton Scott team. Simon Yates, Patrick, is the guy who you'll recall a couple of months ago we were talking about the Giro d'Italia, and we were talking about how the Giro d'Italia had such an atypical finish. Um, because usually the way that Grand Tours go, they're, they're three weeks long, usually the way they go is that, that at two weeks, at the two-week mark, one of the contenders has the leader's jersey. And and most of the people who are kind of like right behind the, con- the, the the leader are other contenders for the win. And then one of two things happens over the course of that remaining week. Either the guy who has a leader's jersey is able to hold off the, uh, the, the, the people that are chasing him, or he falls off and one of those people that were in second or third that was like right behind him is able to rise up and take the, the leader's jersey, right? That's the scenario that's most common. That didn't happen in the Giro d'Italia because in the Giro d'Italia, Adam Yates had the the jersey with a week to go. Chris Froome was like in tenth place. The infamous Chris Froome. The infamous Chris Froome. The notorious Chris Froome. Notorious 
CFR. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, in one day, Adam Yates completely fell apart and dropped out of the top 10 and Chris Froome came out of nowhere and took the lead and ended up winning the race, which is just so unheard of. So the Volta Espana followed the script a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Simon Yates had the Jersey, uh, with a week to go and he was able to defend and hang on to the Jersey, um, as the race finished in Madrid. Um, and so the, the exciting parts about the tail end of this race was actually the other, uh, podium spots, um, second through sixth were basically up in the air until the last day. Um, and then ultimately a guy named Enrique Mas, who was from Spain, uh, ended up second and a guy named Miguel Angel Lopez, who was from Colombia, ended up third. Um, my least favorite cyclist in the pro peloton, uh, Alejandro Valverde, who was sitting in second for a lot of the race. And I was worried was going to catch up with Simon Yates or Simon Yates is going to have a bad day and get, get beaten by Alejandro Valverde. I ended up completely blowing up and finishing outside of the top five, which I thought was fantastic. So, um, so yeah, a very satisfying finish to the Volta España and the, the British end up getting another grand tour winner here. So the, the British cyclists have won the, all three grand tours over the course of the past four or five years. They've won with three different riders, with uh, with Bradley Wiggins, with Simon Yates, and with uh, Chris Froome. Um, so some pretty impressive riding by British cyclists over the course of the past several years. Yeah. I, I imagine you don't have a whole lot to say about that. <laughs> I do not, no. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, let's talk about some research then. Why don't you, uh, why don't you start with your piece of research? Sure. So uh, my study is from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and it is pertaining to sleep. Something that is not just relevant to endurance athletes, but quite honestly, just about every adult in in America. I mean, it's it's something that we struggle with in our kind of electronic age, where you know, you know, sun sunrise and sunfall is almost uh, shouldn't say irrelevant, but it's something that we can almost kind of whisk away with 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 lights and. And I'm, I'm going to put it out there that I feel like your favorite topic is sleep. Yeah, it is. It's, by the way, is it a coincidence I'm club, clutching a cup of coffee right now? Um, so uh, to tell you a little bit about this study, prior research has evaluated the influence of sleep deprivation on endurance performance. And that makes sense, right? You sleep We've less, about that. you probably won't be able to perform as well in endurance tests. Um, but as you, as everybody's probably aware, there's a lot of variation in the real world, right? Some pe- If I ask somebody, hey, how well are you sleeping? They'll probably say, oh, great, I slept all night last night. Okay, well, how did you sleep the month before? Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's, ooh, not, yeah. not quite so much. Um, yeah. So they wanted to kind so, of... So, so to that point, um, you know, there's a lot of different apps you can use and stuff that will track your sleep mm-hmm. and like with, you know, on your, on your Apple Watch or something like that. Right. My wife gave me an Apple Watch a couple of years ago for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wore it for probably two months um, and tracked my sleep. And I thought I was fairly consistent with sleeping. And the, the one big takeaway I found was how inconsistent my sleeping was in terms yeah. of number of hours and time of day that I went to sleep and things like that. I was all I, I was under the impression, oh, I pretty much go to bed at ten and wake up at six every day. That's just kind of what I do. It's not even remotely what I do. Yeah. Because um, if you think about it, if there's an hour variation both ways for waking up and sleeping yeah. or an, waking up and going to sleep, that's like a four hour range each night yeah. on, in an eight hour activity, yeah. roughly seven hour activity. Yeah. I had I had an athlete ask me recently. She said, how, how, how much do you sleep? And I was like, there's not a typical answer to that. Yeah. I said, I said, I typically sleep about seven hours a night, but one or two nights a week, I sleep more than that. And one or two nights a week, I sleep less than that. Right. 
and there's not really a whole lot more days of the week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. The, the the median is yeah. more important than the mean, for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Anyway, I'm, I totally interrupt you. Keep going. That's okay. Uh, as, as you said, it's my favorite topic. So <laughs> uh, they looked at 59 female soccer players between 13 and 18 years old, and they had them undergo uh, ergometer testing to determine their VO2 max and their time to exhaustion. Okay, so... If you, th- if you want to think about it, um, the VO2 max, that's a measure of their fitness, right? How fit are they? Um, the time to exhaustion test on the stationary bike, that's a bit more of a measure of what is your actual performance. Like how can you use that fitness in an actual performance or an actual um, an endurance test? Um, and, of course, better fitness does generally lead to better performance, but they're not identical. So mm-hmm. there's kind of an, an important distinction there. Um, and participants were asked to report prior night's sleep. Um, duration and average sleep duration throughout the calendar month okay so they were tracking how much have you been sleeping the past month how much did you sleep last night and then they divide up the participants based on prior night and prior month sleep duration using kind of the magic number of eight hours it's kind of their their dividing line okay okay and what they found is that there was a significant correlation between getting a lot of sleep between your sleep duration over the last month not much correlation between your performance um uh, specifically with, with, with the night before. Let me get a bit more specific with so, that. So, so you mean the last month re- mattered more in performance than the night before did? Correct. Okay. Let me, let me be, yeah, and let me be a bit more specific here. Um, so the best, predi- or the big sleepers based on the prior month's sleep, they didn't necessarily have the best performance in the time to exhaustion test, but they clearly had the best VO2 max. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty interesting to look at. Um, and then they found that the previous night's sleep was not a factor at all hmm. in, in either. So those who slept more than eight hours lasted a bit longer, over the, but the difference wasn't statistically significant. Okay. And so here's kind of my, my big takeaway. Um, the good news is that if you have a bad night of sleep the night before the wor- a workout or a race, which is bound to happen. I mean, I, yeah, which I, a lot I, of us ra- do. Yeah. I rarely sleep well the night before a race. It won't paralyze you and it won't destroy you. It, right. this, we have not shown that that one night's going to crush your your dream, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it won't help, but it won't be an automatic disqualifier. Um, however, the flip side is that means you can't cram for the test, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You can't sleep, yeah. you know, well the night before the race or the two nights before the race and make up for a month's worth of sleep. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting to look at and really think about. Okay. With this takeaway, or with this study, it looks like the most important thing isn't how much sleep have you gotten recently. It's how consistent have you been with your sleep. Mm-hmm. And how consistent have you been in, in hurting, hitting certain numbers, so to speak. So I found that in, in a way encouraging and at the same time discouraging, right? Yeah. Because it's a lot easier to get a good night's sleep you know, one night a week, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. And I'm the same way. I usually have one night a week where I get a, a, a good night's rest and then some nights where mm, not so much. But... The big thing to focus on as coaches and as athletes is on the consistency from one night to the other and and to look at making sleep a priority so that you know on a night ba- night by night basis you're making a a good attempt to try to get the sleep you need obviously it's not always going to work out if you, if you have family obligations professional obligations you know we've talked about this before we're not always in complete control of our schedule yeah but it is a we were talking about it on our run this morning right but it is a good kind of overarching framework or, or, or mindset to have of it's important to just be consistent yeah more so than okay i will you know build up some debt now and then clear out later or kind right. of pay off the debt later right yeah i have two thoughts on, on along those lines the first one is to say that that i think that 
exactly what you just described is that that a lot of folks will say even in the last week like mm-hmm. okay so it's taper time time for me to really focus on you know getting getting things right um and and but particularly like that last day like like you can impose upon your family the night before a race hey i got a marathon tomorrow right you gotta let me sleep and and your wife your husband your your kids even they're gonna get that and they're gonna cut you that slack you know what i mean but but a month out, hey, I got a marathon in a month. I got it. You, you got to let me sleep. Not so much. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, not so much. Um, and so, and and and, but I, I do kind of find that striking, and that's and that's sort of the 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 downside of the research you're talking about. the 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 other thing that my other big takeaway is that we talk. So this makes perfect sense to me. Is that we talk so much about consistency in training, and we talk so much about consistency in 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 uh, nutrition and stuff like that. Um, and so it kind of makes sense that you would say, okay, I, consistency in sleep matters more than just one good night's sleep, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the idea that getting enough sleep, uh, a big part of it is, so we talked about how getting sleep over the past month increases your fitness, even if it doesn't necessarily increase your, your, your time to exhaustion, right? So it may not improve your performance on that particular day, but what it does is it allows your body to recover between training sessions so you can experience greater improvements in fitness. Right. So you can you, you can continue to put in the hard work that you need to right. continue to improve. Right. I mean it's 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 going to improve it's going to improve your performance over time. Right. Yeah. I mean and that and that's I mean that's kind of what training is, you know. Um you know if if you were to say to any athlete or coach, any endurance athlete or coach, "Hey, what's more important, one month of good training or one good workout?" I mean, it's obvious, right? right? There's nobody who would say, oh, yeah, I would sacrifice. I I would have a bad month of bad training as long as I could have one good workout. No, of course not. One month of good training is far more important than than simply one good workout. What's more important, watching your diet every single day or watching it for one day? You know, I mean, (laughs) it's it's, it's a joke to think that, oh, no, you know, that that, that you can eat garbage for a month and then, oh, but I'm going to clean up my diet for one day and that's going to make up for it. But... But that's literally the mindset that we tend to apply to sleep. Mm-hmm. That that and and I hadn't thought about that until you brought this this uh, this study here. But but um, but yeah, I mean that's literally the mindset that we bring to sleep. That oh yeah, no consistency doesn't matter over time. I can just sleep good one night and I'm good to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not really how it works. Um, so that's not really how any of it works. And so it makes sense that's not how sleep works either. Yeah. So I I found it encouraging. Um, a little discouraging that some of my previous habits that I've had, you know, of, you yeah, know, fair. you know, maybe sleep, getting sleep a few nights a week and not every night. Um, but it, it just kind of helps me kind of highlight the importance of making it a priority. It's not the top priority, obviously, but it is just enough to kind of push me to get to bed 30 minutes sooner. Yeah. It needs to be somewhere close to the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for sure. Very good. Very good. Um, um, all right. Talk about mine. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, my piece of research came out just this month in the Journal of Medical Science and Sports Exercise. Okay. Um, and the title of it is Resistance Training Volume Enhances Muscle Hypertrophy. Um, and then f- I yesterday I decided that I really wanted to find this article. And I'll tell you why uh, in just a minute. And when I finally found the full text article, which is much easier for me to do when I'm actually at work and I have all those resources than I, right. when I'm at home. Um uh, I found that the full title is actually resistance training volume enhances muscle hypertrophy, but not strength. 
Um, and that's actually an important conjunctive phrase here. So let's talk about it real quick. Uh, what they do is they took 45 healthy male volunteers. Um, they had to be males between the age of 1835, uh, no existing musculoskeletal disorder. So nobody's injured or anything else like that. Everybody's healthy. Um, Every single one of them had to claim to be free of consumption of anabolic steroids, of course. Um, and, uh, that seems like and, an important yeah, yeah. It would kind of qualifier. Throw, yeah, yeah. If, if half, your, half your subjects are using steroids, it might throw off your results a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, and then fourth and finally, um, all of them had to be experienced with resistance training. And they defined experience with resistance training as people who have been consistently lifting weights at least three times per week for a minimum of one year. Um, and so... I mean, that's, you know, three times a week for a minimum one year. That's pretty significant here. Um, and what they did is they assigned them to one of three different experimental groups. So 45 people, 15 people, 15 guys per group here. The first one was a low-volume group. The second was a moderate-volume group. And the third was a high-volume group. And what they did is that they had the low-volume group do one set of every exercise. The medium-volume group did three sets of every exercise, and the high-volume group did five sets of, of every exercise. Now, the reason why I was so hell-bent on getting the, uh, the, the article is because I actually wanted to see what the exercises were. And that's not listed in the abstract, but it would be listed in the article. And so I finally found the article, and they had seven different exercises they did. Uh, bench press, military press with barbells, both of those, uh, lat pull-downs, seated cable rows, um, squats, regular squats, not front squats, uh, leg press, and leg extension. Um, and it said they chose those seven exercises based on their common inclusion in bodybuilding and strength type res- resistance training programs, whatever. Um, but the, the the reason why I really wanted to know those is because the results for this, to me, were astounding. Um, they had everybody work out for eight weeks. Um, all three groups work out for eight weeks. And again, they're only taking about 90 seconds in between all the sets here. And sometimes it took up to two minutes in order to be able to move from one machine to another or to move weights around or something else like that. And they did like tw- 10 to 12 reps. And they said that that by the end of, of the set, that was supposed to be about all you could do. Mm-hmm. Like, like you okay. weren't supposed to be able to do any more by the end of that set, right? Um, and and over the course of that eight weeks, as people got stronger, if they got to the end of the set and they felt like they could do more, they increased the weight for the next time, right? And of course, they had you know researchers there, you know, watching them work out and, and increasing those weights for them. Um, and at the end, at the end of eight weeks, they found uh, significant pre to post intervention increases in strength and endurance in all groups. So everybody got stronger and everybody increased their muscular endurance, but there was no significant between group differences in strength. And endurance. In other words, the people that performed one set had the same strength gains as the people who performed five sets of those seven different exercises. The same strength and endurance gains from one set to five sets. Now, alternatively, at the same time, all groups increased muscle size. So everybody had bigger muscles um, from pre to post intervention. The most significant increases favored the high volume conditions. Um, the, the, the high volume group. So in other words, the guys who were doing five sets, their muscles got bigger, but they didn't get any stronger. Okay. Whereas the people so who muscles did just, for show, not muscles for go. Exactly. And so, so the group that only did one set, they got just as strong, but their muscles didn't get any bigger. Now, needless to say, if you're talking about muscles for endurance sports, you don't want your muscles getting bigger. You simply want to get stronger. And so what this seems to suggest is that performing one set of exercises per training session three times a week now, so you have to go to the gym three times a week, 
have to suck it up and go to the gym three times a week. Um, three, uh, one set is actually will result in the same strength gains that five sets does. Um, and and to, to put it in a little bit more stark terms here, they said that the average workout total workout time for the people who were in the low volume group, the the, the one set group, was thirteen minutes. It took thirteen. That's phenomenal. It took thirteen minutes to do these seven things for the high volume group where they're doing five sets. <laughs> they're doing five sets of these things. It took well over an hour. It took like an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, and so an hour and fifteen minutes versus thirteen minutes. I'm pretty sure I know which one I would choose. That, by the way, is the reason why I was like, I want to see what exercises they were doing. <laughs> yeah, because I was like, I was like, this is my new strength workout. <laughs> um, but but I, I wanted to know what exercises they were doing because I was like, okay, what what exercises are they doing where you can get the same one? So, uh, and of course, the conclusion: market increases in strength and endurance can be attained by resistance trained individuals with just three 13 minute weekly sessions over an eight week period, and these gains are similar to that achieved with a substantially greater time commitment. Alternatively, muscle hypertrophy, i.e. muscle growth, follows a dose-response relationship with increasingly greater gains achieved with higher training volumes, unquote. You know what? I don't want hypertrophy. I'm okay with my little small muscles. What I would want is more strength, and so I, I think I'm a one-set guy. What do you think? Uh, I love this study. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many studies come out and say less work is better? <laughs> This is phenomenal. Um, I mean, and, and there's definitely a lot of confirmation bias going on right now. I mean, you know, the the you you want to approach studies with an open mind, right? And 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 you want to be like, oh, well, let's see what studies tell us. But you and I both are looking at this, and we're like, yes. I, I don't want to review any other literature. It's a little bit like, yeah, so yeah, I'm done. There was a Purdue professor. There was who, no methodological problems in this study at all. Exactly. So there was a Purdue professor that found that a glass of wine like helps with heart health mm-hmm. and he said this study has never been replicated because nobody wants to touch it or question it they just want their glass of wine exactly not a single soul in academia is like yeah i'll challenge that yeah um <laughs> i feel the same way about this i'm like sold right um right. i don't know how you are i i enjoy lifting for about 15 minutes it's, it's fun to do like one That's maybe two, two minutes sets. more than you need evidently that, yeah it's I, I enjoy it for one or two sets after that i'm good and so this is music to my ears and i don't know how if other endurance athletes feel the same way but for me it's like i said it's fun for one or two sets so to hear that i only need one is phenomenal i will continue to you know prescribe two sets you know roughly and Mm -hmm. and call it a day it does have me thinking um it really now honestly it does and and you and i have talked about how we'll talk about research on the podcast and we'll change some of our practices yeah um you know i have this summer and you know, case in point, we talked about running in the heat not too long ago, um, and we talked about how one of the things that running in the heat, one of the problems is your core temperature going up, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of the, the things you can do to avoid that is not drink a hot drink immediately prior to a run or a race, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I drink hot tea first thing in the morning. You know, I don't drink coffee; I drink tea, and and I would do it before our long runs, the long runs you and I would go out and do, and. I was like, you know what? I am breaking that rule. And so, so I've, I've gotten to where now I get up and I brew the tea and then I put it on ice. And so I drink a cold mm-hmm. uh, iced tea before I runs now. And knock on wood, because it's still hot as hell in September in Atlanta here. Um, but knock on wood, this is the first summer that I've gone through since 2015, at least, that I haven't had at least one you know, death by heat run. 
right. long run. This is the first time that all my long runs, I haven't had any long runs where I overheated. Mm-hmm. Um, first time since at least 2015. 2016, 2017, I had, 2017, I had a couple. Where yeah, I, I remember with, that. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were with me on some of them um, that, that just got way overheated. I haven't had any of those this summer, knock on wood. Um, you know, we still probably have a couple more hot long runs to go. But, and, I, and I think that's a contributing factor. Um, is the fact that I'm not raising my core body temperature by drinking a hot drink. So anyway, the point of saying all that is to say that that I do think this is very interesting. And I do think over the winter, I'm probably going to try and say, all right, let me increase my frequency of strength training um, and and decrease the duration. Yep. You know, frequency versus duration is the, the, the key component there in any endurance program. And so maybe I'm going to start trying to get into the to the gym three times a week. Mm-hmm. But just go real quick. Just pop in and pop out. You yep. know, 13 minutes. Do those probably seven exercises and maybe do another one. I actually like all seven of those exercises. So so that'll probably be it. Um, and then just head on out and do something else, you know. So anyway, we'll see. We'll see. Final uh, thoughts, Patrick? Uh, it, it's been fun. Uh, this uh, One other kind of final thought on, on Kipchoge. Uh, one thing <laughs> that, 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 I've, uh, that I've talked with a lot of people about is it's amazing how when he broke the record, how communal that felt. Yeah, it's it's. I've thought about that be, since be, you said that on our bonus episode. Because um, you know, in, in in other sports, if for example the other team wins, our team loses, so to speak, right? Yeah. But this is a sport where it's amazing how much he had the help of of scientists, of researchers, of other coaches, and coaches talk to each other and learn from each other. You know, we're not there. There is no you know, gamesmanship, so to speak, where we're trying to hold information, withhold information from one another. Yeah. So it, I still am surprised at just how, um, like almost personally I felt, you know, accomplished when, when he crossed that finish line. Obviously yeah. I didn't run that time, but it's amazing how it, it feels like we're really kind of moving the ball forward, so to speak, in our understanding of endurance and of performance. I agree. Yeah. I, I do feel it, it felt like something that we achieved. Mm-hmm. You know, not you and me necessarily, certainly not just the two of us, but something that we as a running community achieved. Um, and I think that's in part because of who the guy is. You know, mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think we like him. Right. Um, and he and, smiles when he crosses the finish line. Right. Yeah. And he and he and he's gracious and he's a good model. and He's a good representative for the sport. So. So, yeah, um, I think that has a lot to do with it, too, for sure. Um, but but yeah, I would agree with you on that. So on that happy note, then. Thanks for being here, Patrick. We appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, too. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And, of course, our new sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel, a full-service travel agency that can book travel anywhere in the world for you. They're on Facebook at facebook.com slash blue pineapple travel, on Instagram at instagram.com slash blue pineapple travel, or simply at blue pineapple travel.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.